All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27? Last week in our studies, we're going right through Matthew's Gospel. We got as far as verse 56, but I'd like to back up to verse 45 just to read. And of course, our Lord is on the cross by this time. He was placed on that cross by Pilate at 9 o'clock in the morning, what the scriptures call the third hour. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, so that would be noon to three, there was darkness over all the land, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and all the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and of the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come. Let me stop there. This is a reference to the period between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., which is a period the Jews considered the end of the day and the beginning of the evening. It was about the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., that Jesus, while on the cross, uttered his last words, which John said were, it is finished, and then Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. Now, according to Mosaic law, anyone that had been executed by hanging them from a tree, they were not to leave the body on that tree into the evening. They were supposed to bury it the same day, lest the land be defiled. They considered the cross a tree, as Peter would go on to say in his epistle, that Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. And so Jesus became a curse for us. Paul develops that in Galatians where he was cursed so that we could be blessed. Okay? He, was, he was killed that we might have life and so on. But they, they believed, the Jewish people believed that to leave a person on a, on a tree or on a cross uh, into the next day, which would have started at sundown, was to defile that day. Now, if they believed that about a normal day, uh, it doubly applied to a Sabbath day. Remember now, we have just gotten done with Passover. Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. The next day began a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you study that feast in Leviticus 23, you'll discover that it began with a holy day, a Sabbath, and ended on a holy day. These were high holy days, special Sabbaths. You had your weekly Sabbath, which was Saturday, of course. But then you had also special Sabbaths, or high holy days. And these usually preceded or were involved in one of the feasts. And so this is what's going on. And they didn't want the body of Jesus on the cross into this high or extra holy Sabbath day. Now, 
the hypocrisy is breathtaking, okay? One author put it this way. He said, nowhere is the ungodly hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders more evident than in their insistence that Jesus' body be taken down before the Sabbath. They had no compunction about murdering the Lord of the Sabbath, yet they were meticulous in not wanting to defile the Sabbath by having his body hanging on the cross after that day began, end quote. Now here's the problem. The Romans wouldn't allow a crucified man to be removed from the cross until they were sure he was dead. And because the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests didn't want these bodies on the cross into the evening, they wanted this finished before the sunset, they went to Pilate and asked him if he would command his soldiers to break the legs of these three men to hasten their death so they could get them buried before the sun went down. And this was done with a large wooden mallet, and they would use it to shatter the tibia and the fibula bones, the, the major and minor bones connecting the ankle to the knee. Uh, they would smash those. You say, well, what was the purpose in that? Well, it would hasten death. Because as we've talked about, crucifixion was not only extremely painful, but as your body began to slip out of joint, um, it would close off your ability to breathe. So they would have to pull themselves up. It's a horrible thing. Pull themselves up by the nails in their hands, pushing themselves up with a nail in their feet to just pull themselves up enough to get a breath of air, and then they would slump back down again. This could go on for literally days. And so by smashing the legs of these men being crucified, it kept them from lifting up their bodies to get air into their lungs. Of course, that would be ex extremely painful to have your legs smashed like that, and death would come in a matter, I think, of probably minutes, because you just couldn't breathe. So that would hasten. Wonderful thing for these men to have suggested Pilate do. Uh, these holy men, okay, uh, who had railroaded Jesus Christ, and now wanted his body off the cross before the Sabbath came because they were too holy to see the Sabbath profaned. So Pilate gives the order. And after they uh, shattered the legs of the two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus, um, they came to Jesus. Now let me just stop and say this, though. That after they would smash the legs, the Bible scholar and historian Alfred Erdersheim uh, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he tells us that the Roman soldiers would then administer what was called the death stroke. The death stroke. What was the death stroke? Well, it consisted of jabbing a spear into the side or into the heart of the one being crucified to make absolutely sure they didn't cheat death. They didn't cheat death. Look, the Romans knew how to kill people, okay? They were really good at it. And the idea that Jesus really didn't die on that cross, as some propose, but simply passed out from loss of blood and then placed in the tomb thinking he was dead, only to be revived by the cool air in the tomb so that he walked from that tomb eventually, appearing like he had resurrected, but in reality he was just revived. That's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And yet many, there are many proponents of what's come to be known as the swoon theory that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He kind of swooned. He passed out and was revived by the cool air in the tomb. They thought he re resurrected, but he really didn't. I came across a humorous letter to the editor of a Christian magazine accurately evaluating the swoon theory. It goes like this. 
Dare Eutychus. Uh, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that his disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely, bewildered. <laughs> You're bewildered. Beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him there in the hot sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours, and see what happens. <laughs> Sincerely, Eutychus. Ridiculous, you know? The, the explanations people will come up with because they simply don't want to accept what the Bible clearly says. And so Pilate did give the order to have the legs of Jesus and the two thieves that were crucified on either side of him to have their legs broken. Well, when the soldiers had broken the legs of the two thieves, they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead. So they didn't break any of his bones. But one of the soldiers, just wanting to make sure he was in fact dead, administered the death stroke. We read about this in John's Gospel, chapter 19. Verses 34 to 6, John says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth so that you may believe. That's John, who wrote this. So he's basically, I was there, I saw it. I'm, my testimony is true. I'm telling you this so that you might believe, that Jesus Christ really died. Okay, He was really killed, so that you might believe he rose from the dead. But verse 36, John goes on to say, For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Then he quotes Psalm 34, verse 20, Not one of his bones shall be broken. That was a prophecy given a thousand years before Christ's crucifixion, saying that none of his bones would be broken. And indeed, they were not. Even though the soldiers had the order to smash the legs of the three men being crucified that day, they smashed the legs of the two thieves, came to Jesus, did not break his bones because he was already dead. But just to be sure, the one soldier thrust a spear into his side, and that also fulfilled prophecy, which John states in verse 37 of the 19th chapter of his gospel, quoting from Zechariah 12.10, and again another scripture John says was fulfilled, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. There were 32 or 33 prophecies that were fulfilled the day of Jesus' crucifixion, all of which was God's stamp of authenticity on the fact that this man was, in fact, the true Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I think at this point, another prophecy was fulfilled. And not everybody agrees with this, but I, myself, and many others believe Psalm 69 was also a prophecy that was written through David, but Jesus speaking from the cross, and in Psalm 69, verse 20, we read, Reproach has, listen, broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Some medical experts believe that under extreme circumstances, it is possible for the human heart to literally burst from emotional strain causing the blood to spill into the pericardium, which is the sac that surrounds the heart, and uh, they're mixed with the clear lymphatic fluid. And many believe this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He died of a broken heart. So that when the, the soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side, it pierced the pericardium, and out came the coagulated blood in the lymphatic fluid, which John describes as water. Now that's interesting because 
Water and blood have been symbols for the church since its inception. Now you remember that Paul makes a big deal in Romans, talking about the first, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, talking about the first Adam and then the last Adam. First Adam being the Adam of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, who blew it for all of us and brought sin into the human race, which meant we were all fallen creatures from that point on. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came to redeem us. Now, if you remember how that the first Adam had his wife taken from his side, didn't he? Well, the last Adam, as he hung that cross and that spear was thrust into his side, out came the water and the blood, a symbol for the church, which is the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ birthed his church, you might say, by dying on the cross for our sins. There is no way we could ever become the bride of Christ if Jesus hadn't died on that cross for us. That's interesting. Now, typically, what happened after a person had been crucified was dead. The Romans would uh, rather, rather quickly take the body off the cross. Now, if a family member or a family came to the governor and said, look, that's our relative. Can we have the body to properly bury it? They would usually give the body to the family to bury it as they chose, to honor the body, of course, by burying it properly. Uh, if nobody stepped forward to claim the body, Rome had very little regard, very little respect for a corpse. They would just toss him into a shallow grave uh, that was set aside for criminals. Sometimes they would even throw it into, into an open ditch and let the wild animals and the birds feed on the carcass. Now, back in Matthew 27, starting in verse 57, we read, Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Joseph of Arimathea. Where was Arimathea? It was a town somewhere in Israel. We don't know where it was. I studied uh, every source I could find. Nobody knows exactly where Arimathea was. One guy says it could have been up near Joppa. We don't know, though. But who was this Joseph? Well, from what we can gather from the Gospels, Matthew tells us he was a wealthy man, but also he was a disciple of Jesus. Mark and Luke add that he was a member of the council, which means he was a member of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish governing body in Israel. Mark says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he was a man who was looking for the Messiah and had come to believe Jesus was in fact that Messiah. Luke adds that he was a good and upright man, listen, who had not consented to their decision and action. He didn't vote to have Jesus railroaded and killed like the other members of the Sanhedrin had done. He wasn't for this. He didn't want Jesus crucified. He wasn't going to railroad an innocent man plus a man he believed to be the Messiah. So Joseph was a follower of Jesus, although up until this point he had been, listen, a secret disciple. A secret disciple. Now, Jesus had many who secretly believed in him. Another one that we read about was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the one in John chapter 3 who came to Jesus privately one night and said, Rabbi, we know, see, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. 
So it seems that there was a small group of powerful, well-connected men who secretly followed Jesus. But listen, they were afraid to openly declare their allegiance to him because they feared the repercussions that would come upon them from the other members of the Sanhedrin who were in the majority of those who hated Jesus. So he didn't want to come out publicly because they were afraid. They were well-connected, they were wealthy, many of them, and they were afraid of losing their social status, which is always a problem. The fear of man brings what? A snare. The fear of man brings a snare. But you know what? There comes a time when you can no longer be a secret disciple, when you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to step from the shadows into the light with your faith. I still remember the day that I came out of the closet uh, as a Christian with regard to my faith. You know, I uh, had a secular job, of course. I, was, I worked for an oil company at one time. Uh, I worked the midnight shift, so I'd you know, come, and I worked with truck drivers. <laughs> God love them. They're not the easiest guys to work with, all right, especially if you get on their bad side. And, uh, you know, I was a blue-collar guy, worked for an oil company. I loaded gasoline trucks received uh, product from the refinery to send on to the airport and various gas stations. That was my job. Okay, I worked the midnight shift. So I came to work at 1130, relieved a guy, you know, had coffee together, and then he went home and I did my stuff and was able to get uh, my stuff done and had a good chunk of time where I then would bring my, go to the car. I left my Bible in the car, uh, brought it out then, read it, studied it, and put it away before the morning rush came in where the truck drivers came in for their, to get their trucks loaded and so on. This went on for a few weeks, maybe a month or so, until one day I decided, you know what, I'm tired of being you know, a closet Christian. I need to let people know that I've gotten saved. So I can walk in one night with my Bible tucked under my arm. Well, that generated some conversation with the guy I relieved, you know, uh, opened the door for me to witness to him. But Word spread quickly that I had become a Christian, and boy, did that unleash a tirade of ridicule and mocking and joking. And they all knew me before I had gotten saved. Now, here, I was a Christian, and they let me have it. But it did open the door for me to witness to some of the guys. I mean, they would catch me sometimes privately, and we'd talk, and some guys that got saved because we had some good conversations. Look, you can hide out and play it safe, or... You can say, Lord, I need to let my light shine. Now, just remember what Jesus said. If you deny me before men, I'll deny before my Father. You proclaim me before men, I'll proclaim you openly before my Father. Something to think about, right? We must become visible and then vocal with our faith. And I think it just I think that, you know, most Christians just come to that point where it's like they're tired of hiding out, they're tired of being afraid. They're tired of worrying about what people are going to think about them. I think Joseph and Nicodemus, who had been secret disciples of Christ up until this point, when Jesus died on that cross, I think the Holy Spirit really nailed them. I think the Holy Spirit basically said, what are you doing? Jesus died openly, and you're hiding out and afraid to show your allegiance to him? I think that that really convicted them. So they come publicly now to Pilate. We pick this up in John 19, starting in verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jewish leadership, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. 
Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now, as I just said, if Joseph of Arimathea hadn't stepped forward to ask for the body of Christ, to bury it in his own tomb, a new tomb he had no doubt had prepared for himself and his family, if he had not done that, certainly the Romans would have taken that body, thrown it into a shallow grave for criminals, or even tossed the body of Jesus into a ditch to be eaten by wild animals. The fact that Joseph did that fulfilled another prophecy, which we read about in Isaiah 53, verse 9. He had done no wrong, speaking of Christ, and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. <laughs> How many criminals? And of course, Jesus was called a criminal. He was innocent. How many criminals in history have been buried in a rich man's grave? See, these prophecies were very specific, weren't they? Designed to let people know these were not vague generalities. These were pretty specific. So, I mean, you know, come on, think about it. How many criminals were buried in a rich man's grave? Well, Jesus was. I don't know about anybody else, but Jesus was. Now, some commentators make it a point to say that Joseph took Jesus' body and embalmed it. Embalmed it. That is inaccurate. The Jews did not embalm their dead as the Egyptians did. Okay? Read verses 39 and 40 of John 19 again. We read about how Nicodemus came along with Joseph. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is, to bury. Now, later on, and we'll look at this next time, later on in John's Gospel, when Jesus rose from the dead, after he rose from the dead, the disciples went to the tomb, looked inside, and John describes a scene like a cocoon that was now empty. The windings, and they did kind of wind the body, starting with the legs, wound the torso, uh, the legs, the torso with the hands, uh, arms to the side, wound it like a mummy, winding into the windings of the linen strips, uh, spices, sweet spices, aloe, myrrh, and so on. And then, as John describes, uh, they put a separate piece of cloth, which John calls a napkin, with like a turban, uh, on Jesus' head, leaving his face exposed. One author said, and I quote, this proves to me conclusively the Shroud of Turin is not authentic. Think of the pictures you've seen of the shroud. They always show the imprint of the crucified victim from head to toe. Here the scripture record says that there was a napkin, a separate piece of cloth around the head of Jesus. Thus the shroud does not meet this particular criterion. And that is true. And I've always believed the shroud of Turin is not uh, really the burial cloth of Jesus. Uh, for this very reason, the Bible describes two pieces of cloth, one for his head like a turban, and the rest from his neck down was wrapped like a mummy. Um, doesn't fit the description of the Shroud of Turin. But also, come on, think about this. God, knowing the propensity in the human heart to worship relics and objects which he does not want, why would he allow a print, some have called it a negative, 
like a negative on a film, why would he allow a, a, a print of Jesus' body to happen on a piece of cloth that he knew would only, only cause people to want to worship it? So I, I just have never believed the shroud of turn is genuine, and then the Bible record bears that up. But the Jews didn't involve. They wrapped the body with strips of cloth, weaving into them sweet spices to kind of stave off the stench of decomposition for a while, uh, but not long. Matthew 27, verse 59, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. When the garden tomb was discovered in 1885 by a very godly British army officer named General Gordon, as they first uncovered this thing, it was overgrown with all kinds of stuff, and they, they hacked through a bunch of stuff. When they found it, initially they thought they had discovered a cave, a lot of caves in Israel, okay? Uh, they simply thought that they had discovered a cave in the side of a, uh, of a hill, but upon further examination, they realized it was a man-made burial chamber that had been hewn out of the stone. They knew it was a, belonged to a wealthy man at one time. Why? How? Well, because the chamber was divided into two compartments. And that was consistent with how the rich had their burial chambers constructed. So they knew it was a man-made burial chamber and owned by a rich man. General Gordon was certain this was the very tomb where the body of the Lord Jesus had lain. But to be sure, he took soil samples. He had soil samples taken all over the floor of the tomb. He sent them back to the Scientific Association of Great Britain and London, England, with this instruction. He says, thoroughly examine these soil samples and let me know if they contain any trace of human decomposition. A few weeks passed. General Gordon gets word back from the laboratory. We have thoroughly examined all of the soil samples that you have sent us, and we can tell you without question, they contain absolutely no trace of human decomposition. If that is the real tomb, and I believe it is, the one that you can go to Israel today and see, the one you can go online, no doubt have, and seen it for yourself, if that is in fact the real tomb of Christ, then Jesus, listen, was the first to be laid there, and he was the last to be laid there. As one pastor put it, he came into the world from a virgin's womb. He came forth again from a virgin tomb. And I believe Joseph gave his tomb to be used to bury Jesus' body. Some people say it was no big deal, just a weekend. <laughs> but here's the deal, all right? <laughs> that tomb became a holy place, a sacred place. And Joseph kept it from ever being used. And these were not cheap to, to create, these, these tombs dug into the side of a mountain or a hill. Very costly. By Joseph keeping it then pure, he never had it, used it for himself or his family. He kept it pure. He honored the place where the body of the Lord Jesus had lain. But we read how that after he laid the body into this tomb, he then rolled a door, excuse me, he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Verse 60 tells us this was the customary way to seal an expensive tomb. These tombs typically had a small opening carved in them, 
uh, where you'd have to kind of stoop to get into the tomb itself. The door of the tomb was typically made of a heavy circular shaped stone weighing between three and 4,000 pounds. And the stone would rest in a groove or a channel uh, on the ground, which allowed it to be rolled in front of the tomb or, you know, rolled away from the opening of the tomb if you wanted to get another body in there. So it was this channel system that, that the stone would roll back and forth in. Of course, it would take several very strong men to move this stone. I mean, you know, three and four to 4,000 pound stone, which is why we read in Mark's gospel that very early on Sunday morning, a group of women who had followed Jesus' ministry were making their way to the tomb that morning with more spices because Remember now, Joseph and Nicodemus quickly prepared Jesus' body for burial. They didn't do a proper job. They just wanted to get it into the tomb before the sun set, and the sun was setting quick. But they knew they hadn't done a proper job. The women knew that, and so they purposed to come back very early on Sunday morning after the Sabbath to finish preparing the body of Jesus properly for burial. But we read in Mark's gospel how they were making their way towards the tomb that morning. They were staying among themselves Who is going to roll away that stone for us? In their minds, that was a big problem. And indeed it was. Of course, when they got there, God had taken care of that, as we'll see next time. But it was a pretty heavy stone, all right? Now, just as a little aside, after the Jews would bury uh, somebody in a tomb and seal it up, they would usually leave it sealed for a few years to let decomposition take place to reduce the body just to bones. After the body had been reduced to just bones, they would go back into the tomb. This is maybe two or three or four years down the road. They would go in, disassemble the body, take the bones apart, and put them in a small stone box called an ossuary. And they would then, you know, close the ossuary up, and they would keep it in the tomb. And, and that's what they would do for all the family members that died and were placed in that tomb. Uh, they have uncovered tombs in Israel that have numerous what they call bone boxes or these stone boxes called ossuaries where the bones of the dead were eventually then put into and kept there. So that's just a little aside. Of course, that never happened with Jesus, all right, um, because he never got that far, all right. And so again, Joseph laid Jesus' body in his new tomb, rolled It says, he rolled a stone, no doubt he had his servants roll a large stone over the opening, and he departed. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Who was this other Mary? We know there was four Marys, at least in the gospel records of those who followed Jesus, maybe others. It's a very common name. Well, in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark's gospel, we read how this other Mary was the mother of Joses. So Mary Magdalene, and then Mary, the mother of Joses. Uh, as we've already seen in verse 56 of Matthew's gospel, this Mary was also the, called the Mary of James and Joses, Joses being another name for John. So she was the other Mary there, Mary Magdalene, which we talked about last week. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Her life before Christ must have been an absolutely horrific, miserable thing. And now you have Mary, the mother of James and Joses there at the tomb. You say, well, where was Mary, Jesus' mother, John the Apostle, and Mary's sister Salome because earlier in the Gospels we saw how they were all by the cross when Jesus was being crucified. Well, they had probably gone home by this time. I mean, it had been a long day. I mean, a long, difficult day. And John probably had taken Mary to his house because Jesus had said from the cross, John, take care of her. And said to Mary, Mary, this is your son now. And so John, it says, 
took her home, and took care of her the rest of her life. So she lived with John. Uh, on that day, no doubt, Salome went with them to kind of comfort her sister as she was grieving over the loss of her son Jesus. So they probably all went to John's house, okay? And that left Mary Magdalene and this other Mary there by the tomb. We read in verse 62, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said. You know, they hate Jesus so much they won't even say his name even in death. That's how much they hated him. This deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, even though the chief priests and Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus, they did remember something that he had said to them earlier in his ministry. Remember in, John, in Matthew 12, how they came to him and said to him one day, All right, enough is enough. Prove to us once and for all you are really the Messiah. Show us a sign from heaven. And what did Jesus say? He said, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, you have to understand, these men didn't believe that Jesus was really going to rise from the dead. What they were afraid of was that Jesus' disciples would come at night and steal the body of Christ away and then claim he had risen from the dead, which in their minds would have perpetuated an even greater deception than all the things that Jesus taught that they believed were lies. Now, to make him a perpetual figure where you know his death didn't end his ministry but now to claim that he's risen from the dead they said that would be a worse lie than what he taught in the beginning so they didn't want that so much so that when jesus did rise from the dead and the guard went to these very men to tell them that someone had rolled the stone away the tomb was empty the body of jesus was gone these men evil men of unbelief still didn't believe jesus had risen from the dead in fact, if you drop down to Matthew 28, verse 11, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this thing comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they said, look, here's some money. Just tell everybody you fell asleep and his disciples came and stole the body. And if the governor finds out that you said you fell asleep on duty, we'll bribe him too. It'll be fine. So that's what happened. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying, listen, is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The day that Matthew recorded this, the Jews still believed that Jesus had not really risen from the dead, that his disciples had come by night and stolen the body away and claimed he had risen from the dead. 
Now, next week, God willing, we're going to show you how ridiculous that was. Okay? We'll show you how ridiculous that was. But Matthew said, that lie is still going in my day. Well, guess what? It's still going in our day. Because what has come to be known as the theft theory, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his disciples came and stole the body away and claimed he had risen from the dead. It's come to be known as the theft theory and became the basis of Hugh Schoenfeld's 1967 novel, The Passover Plot, where Schoenfeld basically presented this very idea that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. His disciples came, stole the body away, and claimed he had risen from the dead. Again, we're going to show you next week how absolutely absurd that idea really is. But you know what? It doesn't really matter, I mean, what the Bible says for a lot of people. It's what they choose to believe. And people are willing to believe a lie, even if it's so fantastic and so absurd. They will believe a lie rather than the truth because they don't want to accept the truth. I think of uh, Moses and the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Of course, it was miraculous. God parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground, right? Well, you have skeptics, critics who say, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. See, there's a shallow marshy area called the Sea of Reeds. See, Red Sea, Sea of Reeds kind of sounds the same, doesn't it? To the north of the sea, the Red Sea. And that's where they really cross. No doubt there's a lot of wind in that area. And it's a lot of wind one night and, you know, Six inches of water kind of went down to two inches. That's what they crossed. The Egyptian army crossed over the Sea of Reeds. A couple inches of water. God didn't really part the Red Sea. It didn't happen. Okay. So what you're saying is then that the strongest army on the face of the earth, the Egyptian army, well-trained soldiers, all drowned in two inches of water? That's a bigger miracle than just believing God parted the Red Sea. I mean, give me a break. And we'll see next week what we're talking about with this whole theft theory, okay? But look, we're, we're done. It shouldn't surprise us that the devil would try to discredit the resurrection. Because listen to me, the Christian faith, which means the salvation of men and women, rises and falls on the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It all depends on whether or not Christ really arose from the dead. Now, Paul made this very clear when he wrote to the Corinthians who had gotten a hold of some bad teaching, where they had embraced some false teaching that said that the dead don't rise. There is no such thing as resurrection. And Paul fired them a letter, especially I'm thinking of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, well, what do you mean the dead don't rise? If the dead don't rise, guess what? Jesus Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul said, then all our preaching is useless. Your faith is in vain. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, guess what? We got some problems, is what he's saying. All right? It means that your faith is useless. You are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ, they're lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. In other words, if we're just deceiving ourselves, and while we're alive, we just, we're deluded in the thinking because Christ was risen that someday 
I'm going to be raised to spend eternity with him in heaven. But if all that's a lie, there, there's no such thing as resurrection. Christ is not raised. Hey, we're deceiving ourselves. If our faith is just self-deception, we are to be pitied among all people because we deny ourselves. People go out and witness for Christ and are martyred. Hey, look, if the dead don't rise, Paul says, go out and eat, drink, and be merry because this life is all there is. Now, thank goodness he didn't leave it there. He goes on to say, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And that is a topic we will study starting next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, the innocent, to die for the guilty. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you were a willing sacrifice. You said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. And we are so grateful, Lord, that by your death, you paid for our sins. But by your resurrection, you conquered death for all of us. We may die, and we may not. There's coming a rapture, and we believe very soon, everybody in this room right now, who knows you, Lord, we may never taste death, because we might be taken soon to stand before you in the clouds. But Lord, even if we do taste death and are placed in the tomb, it will only be temporary because the grave cannot hold us. You have defeated the grave. You've defeated death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? That is the cry of all those who have put their faith in you. And so, Lord, we thank you that because you did rise from the dead, you became the first fruits of all who would die believing in you, that someday we also would be raised from the dead, never to die again, but to have an eternity with you someday. And we thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to continue to bless the sacred ground that we're on, the study of your death, your burial, and then your resurrection. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.